Hi, I'm Matt. I'm Annie. And I'm Melissa. And together we want to welcome you to Still Great Bob. If this is your first time joining us, together we are watching AMC's Mad Men, trying to answer the question, is it still great, Bob? This week we're discussing Season 4, Episode 5, The Chrysanthemum and the Sword, written by Aaron Levy and directed by Leslie Linka Gladder. This episode originally aired in August uh, the 22nd in 2010. Hit movies that weekend included The Expendables, still at number one after opening last week. Opening at number two was Vampire Suck, which, if I recall correctly, was one of those not another teen movie sort of like pop culture spoofs largely based on Twilight. And number So I have to watch that. I think so. <laughs> That's what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. Maybe, maybe we'll like, you know, do, well, we'll, we'll talk. We'll talk offline. <laughs> and then opening at, or no, sorry. Number three this weekend at the box office, falling from number two last week, was Eat, Pray, Love. The hit song that weekend was still Love the Way You Lie, Eminem featuring Rihanna. This week on Mad Men, Don and Betty discuss Sally's recent behavior. Sterling Cooper Draper Price courts a new account. And Roger is, once again openly racist yay madman i had this thought watching this episode and like it was such a thought that i was percolating from watching it to right before we were when we were getting her to record i uh i think i might have even tweeted it out Ooh, burning pot on the timeline um but like for all like the praise and acclaim that like Matthew Weiner gets as like the auteur and creator and showrunner of Mad Men. Um, some of the best moments and some of the best direction in Mad Men have been on the episodes that have been written and directed by women. And this I episode agree. and this episode again, written by Aaron Levy, Aaron Levy, I'm sorry, I don't know how you pronounce Aaron's last name correctly. Um was her first solo writing credit. Again, Leslie Linka Gladder directed A Guy Walks Into an Ad Agency in season three. And I think she also directed, um, uh, was it season two episode? Is it New Girl? The one with, with Bobby and uh, Peggy in Peggy's apartment. I think it was. Oh, one. okay. I think Leslie Linka Gladder directed that one as well. So I should have checked that before we started recording. Rookie mistake. But yeah, just the direction this episode really stood out to me from like the moments that we'll get into, like Don and Faye in the kitchen at the office, or just Peggy and the motorcycle, and the way that mm. that is shot and done in that moment is such a strong character moment for Peggy in an episode where she ostensibly doesn't get a lot to do is just like chef's kiss. It's great. It's good stuff. Yeah. Uh, Peggy's not in our like categories this week. So we should definitely say several times how cool she looked on that motorcycle. <laughs> she looked great with her like weirdly perfect circles. Yeah, I know she was just chilling. It was great. I loved it. That's our adventure girl. Yeah. I think we've actually talked about this a bit before where um, where episodes that like Weiner has written, the women especially get kind of weird. <laughs> um, and I am, and while he was probably the one who decided that Sally would have her moment of exploration, um, which I'm not super comfortable with, would have been even more uncomfortable if he had written this episode, because I'm sure it would not have been done as well. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely thought about that, especially in terms of like 
filming this episode, mm-hmm. the mm. young Kieran and Chipka, mm. and like, I wonder at her age how much she knew like what this storyline was actually saying. Yeah, um, I'm sure that that information is out there, and I didn't do the homework well enough. But <laughs> I did think about that. Well, like even the way yeah. Gladder like directs that scene, and like the way it's done, like in close up too on on chipka's face like it's just it's really it's just so well done and like Mm -hmm. it could have been so much worse yeah like it's (laughs) pretty clear what's happening but also clear that they could have gotten around explaining exactly what was happening to the actress yeah yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah. very well done all the points did we want to start talking about don yeah (laughs) before all that um, Don is now taking Bethany on another date. Um, and this date is obviously business, but I love that she calls him out for lack of interest in her. She's like three dates in five months. Like, what are you doing? Uh, she still said yes. She did. Well, who's going to pass up an expensive meal at Benny Hanna's? Wow. I forgot to, I was looking up when it, uh, Benny Hanna's was um graded but yeah i'm sure this is the t- around the time it was a new and fancy yeah so i think i had read it had just opened recently and they like if you the source i was reading it was um in the the madman carousel book by uh, matthew zoller sites which we which we've cited before he had the exact address in met Ma- in manhattan where the first one opened or it would have been but yeah it was like pretty new at this point so Nothing, yeah. nothing like preparing and doing your business homework for, you know, a foreign foreign company by engaging in some consumerist cultural tourism, right? Gotta love but, it. Although, yeah. I will say about Benihana is it was created by uh, Hiroaki Aoki, uh, father to Stephen Devon. Um, and honestly, he was just trying to make money and he knew he could package this shit yeah. uh, and sell it to white people and make tons of money. <laughs> and he did. It's he true. did. He did. It's true. And I honestly can't be mad. <laughs> it's like good for you, bud. Uh, you know, let the white supremacy do the work for you. Uh, it seems to have worked out well for him. Seems like an interesting guy. Yeah. I always forget that Steve and Devin are the Benny Hanna heirs. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I mean, I'll give this to Don. He seems to have been the only one to actually have read the book that everyone was supposed to read. Mm-hmm. But, which again <laughs> sure. slightly problematic um yes yeah and, th- and that's where the episode like i guess we're getting all bits and bobs out now in the discussion that's good too that's good that works um but yeah the the book that don read that everyone's supposed to read that, that don read which gives the episode its title the chrysanthemum and the sword is a 1946 novel by an american anthropologist ruth benedict and ruth benedict was invited by the united states office of war information to write this cultural study of japan shortly after world war ii as a way to help americans understand japan and and japanese culture ostensibly in the face of the american occupation of of japan following world war ii and it was a bestseller uh people liked it people found it interesting it makes me wonder if this is where burt cooper's 
I guess politely oh, putting it would be fascination yeah. with um, slash appropriative sort of elements of Japanese culture kind of started. Because again, this is almost 20 years later. We're mm-hmm. talking about where we're talking about the 64 in, in Mad Men or I think 65. I can't remember where we are now. We know we just had New Year's. Um, but I do want to raise some of the, the criticisms of the book and the ways in which it, it definitely engages in the project of Orientalism and othering the Japanese specifically. And it's kind of messed up in the ways in which this then informed um, the post-war kind of Japanese sense of identity, which was response to an American who was writing this thing for the government that was occupied like it just it gets really complicated really complex and really messy and this book even more recently in the early 2000s early mid 2000s became a bestseller in china when china started kind of saber rattling and and you know there was definitely a decline in in what was in the relationship between china and japan as well so it's like yeah it's just Mm -hmm. The history of this book is uh, complex. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and the whole, and I know we've talked about like how the show handles race before and often it's just used as an object and a tool. And this doesn't really super help. Uh, no, it def- help with their defense. Um, because a lot of it, it, you're kind of laughing at first at how, how they're falling into these ideas of what like Japanese businessmen are and how ridiculous they are and, relying on certain stereotypes and going to Benihana's, except then they, one, it they have the businessmen show up and live up to all these stereotypes. And two, it just seems like a really good excuse, quote unquote, good excuse to put incredibly racist words in their characters' mouths. And it's so mm-hmm. uncomfortable. It's so uncomfortable. Um, <clears throat> It seems like at the surface, I was like, oh, this is all a setup for... Um, you know, Pete being back, back cooking up deals and mm-hmm. like being businessman Pete continuing on his upward trajectory um, of businessing. But then I'm just like, uh, especially because of the conversation between Roger and Joan, I'm like, oh, is this all character shit for Roger? Like, who the fuck cares? <laughs> yeah. Like, it's, it, it is interesting, the continued, like, tension between Roger and Pete, and Pete being this way of the future, and Roger being even heart worse than, than Cooper, with changing and adapting with the future world. And it would be interesting to delve into the continued, like, experience of trauma that Roger had from World War II. Great. Interesting stuff. Is this a way to go about it? Is this a way to capture my attention and make him sympath- sympathetic for him? No, not really. And, like, speaking as someone whose family, whose parents were alive during Japanese occupation in the Philippines during World War II, like, fucking get over it, Roger. Get over your shit. Yeah, it's just horrible looks. And they're using Joan again to kind of, like... I Okay, let me back up. I have mixed feelings for a couple different reasons about the Joan and and Roger scene, which again, I think in the spirit of this episode was incredibly well, well directed and, and well blocked. Mm -hmm. Um, but like you're, you like, and I know that Joan and Roger have had a kind of warming and cooling and kind of back and forth in their relationship. And even as I don't know if we're entering a warming period or, or not 
you know, it kind of makes me wonder with the the recent Christmas party and Roger mentioning he remembered that dress and then Joan put it on. But like the idea of using like, yes, I like that Joan is calling kind of Roger on his shit a little bit in a very Joan way. Mm-hmm. But it's also like you're using the emotional labor of one of your female characters to like correct the ship or correct the behavior or speak to the behavior bad behavior more more precisely of one of your male characters who you use their you play their bad behavior for laughs a lot of the time too right and it's just i i don't know i just i want different things for joan and I don't know. We can, we can get into more of her kind of specific comments later because I do have complex feelings on that as well. But uh... mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I could probably talk about Joan all day, all the time. So <laughs> I'm right? down. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was just going to say that like, and like even being this much further on from like even this episode. So like, you know, being almost 60 years on from this episode takes place. So then almost like 80 years on from like world war two and kind of various kind of historiographical lenses that we can, can look on it. And even it generally culturally be considered like the last good war. Um, the allies weren't really fighting fascism until it was their problem. Right. And then like, even in, in terms of like Canada, where I live, William Lyon Mackenzie King, who was the the prime minister of the time during the Depression and then into the the Second World War, said some pretty nice, great things about Hitler specifically until, you know, the war and then things changed and it kind of threatening um, Western capital and things like this. So, like, Joan's comments about how the world has changed and Roger made it a safer place and, like, you know, fitting kind of with that that greatest generation sort of mythos i do have some critiques of but what i think really sticks with me and what lands the strongest in that scene is roger even kind of pushes back on her characterization of that a bit which again i think would have been very real in terms of like you know 20 years on from the war and things like that and roger asks her do you actually believe it and joan says i choose to because I have to believe it or, or or something to that effect. And like, that is a whole mood that I have been thinking on a lot over the last couple of years. Or even it reminds me of the end of the third matrix movie where it's <laughs> like, why, why do you person? Then this is where I go full mat, but it's like Smith asked Neo, why do you per- persevere? Like, you know, all hope is lost and blah, 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 blah. And Neo's like, because I choose to. And it just like, Okay. I get it. Like, like through that, like kind of character beat as much as like from like a, a history and ideological perspective, I might not agree with her, her analysis, but I also have 60 plus years to, to look back in more distance. Right. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <sighs> Roger. <laughs> I like, I didn't, I didn't remember Roger being such a problematic character this whole time, but half the time it seems like they really don't know what to do with him. I have a friend with questionable taste. Yeah. And she really thinks that Roger is hot. And I'm like, have you listened to him talk, though? (laughs) I mean, Henry's right there. I know. Oh, man. (laughs) 
And if you want something a little softer, you've got Lane Price. If you want like. Yeah. Yes, Lane. Oh, my goodness. Lane. Let's talk about Lane saying <laughs> to Don, you really thought I did not know everything that goes on around here. I, I love <laughs> I love his quiet power. I love yeah, that. That was he, really great. Yes. I love how he just quietly drops like, I let you do that, bro. <laughs> Oh, my God. And Don really was a little bit shaken up by that. He was like, excuse me, what? It's mm-hmm. like, yeah, sir. This is how this is how the English do it now. Thank you. And somebody <laughs> reminded us in this episode that Don disappeared for a month. So it's like, yeah, of course you have to be let you like people have to give you permission to do things because you do not make great choices 100 percent of the time. Gosh, especially since he was being very. Uh, I don't want to just say he was being very American with his whole like, oh, well, you know, who wins anything by not occasionally breaking the rules, which is done all over his his uh, Mm -hmm. bravado and sense of of confidence that may or may not be well founded. So, yes. Yeah, I, too, would have been at least concerned about his next moves. A secret fake commercial. Like, it sucks to be Don's rival. Ted Shaw. Unless you're Henry. (laughs) In which case, there is no competition. (gasps) Oh, Ted Shaw and your weird thing. (laughs) It did kind of feel a little bit like Ocean's Eleven at some point, though, where I'm like, oh, okay. I like it, but also don't don't totally understand the tone shift. Yeah, yeah. Occasionally, yeah. the show is a little heavy-handed. <laughs> I did. Uh, I did like at the start of the episode where the Times reporter is calling to to get that quote from Don because Ted, the the rival, picked up Clarissa after um, Sterling Cooper Draper Price had to had to you know had the conflict with with Pons and Don's like, is this on the record? And the reporter's like, yeah. It's like Ted Shaw. Don't even know who he is. And Ted was like, Don sees me in his review mirror. And the, the reporter just kind of chuckles. And he's obviously like at lunch or whatever. I'm like, well, Don's, pl- Don's playing the game. He's into it. But also, he's playing the game. He's actually bugged by this. And then it's what leads to the whole fake commercial situation. But Such a Mariah move. Mm-hmm. Oh, Don. At least he's capable in one part of his life. Sometimes. Well, it's always about the work. It's no surprise to me that, like, Don instigates is kind of a strong word, but, like, Don is not present enough to prevent a family crisis from occurring because he just has to be doing the work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, I really, like, in terms of, like, the f- like the first instance of Sally, air quotes, acting out as as her parents call it in the episode with the haircutting um he couldn't be home that night like he gets so like and like i had this thought as he was like packing up and the neighbor was coming over to to babysit and then henry later like calls it out explicitly in the episode when don drops drops them off and i'm just like you say later in your in your kitchenette confessional that like yeah okay you're relieved when the kids leave but then you miss them and you don't get enough time with them and like just has this very real moment and it's like you couldn't just like take the night off does Benihana not do lunch like 
couldn't do like a working lunch situation. Like, I don't know. It just was like, I get that your life and your working life, like doesn't stop the week that you have your children. But like, I don't know. And Maybe he had to be there like, for them? like, it's tough. It's yeah. tough. It's tough. Yeah. Well, and he also had to like two birds, one stone it by bringing a date that he has been neglecting. Yeah. Yeah. And then he gets mad at Phoebe. Yeah. You should have been Where's watching Phoebe? her. I was like, I think you should have been watching her, sir. Yeah. And like, also everyone in this episode essentially agrees that like, this is a normal childhood behavior. And yet Sally still gets slapped in the face. I know that there's just a lot of projection going on with Betty and Sally and it's not completely out of character for her, but it, I feel like I'm regressing back into that part of me where I didn't really like Betty too much before this rewatch. I just, it's really hard to watch her, at least for me personally, I don't want to put words in her mouth. It's like very hard for me as a prior girl child to watch her fail so spectacularly at like girl parenting mm-hmm. no I, i'm not sure if like i feel like they're writing her purposely to be so terrible because in that moment yeah it's like the only thing you can do to make don look kind of good is to make betty look even worse i know and i hate that it works on me because i'm like don wasn't even don okay Obviously, he can't be trusted. You definitely think that he's had girls parading in and out of that apartment. And, like, we haven't seen a lot of that, although we have seen some of it. But this episode makes me, like, a little defensive of Don because it's like, Betty, you don't know that he's been, like, miserable in his apartment, like, failing at life. Sending drunken emails. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is not, like, behavior that needs defending. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. And I mean, because like part of it's like, well, Don wasn't even there. You can't be mad at him. And it's like, yes, you can't because Don wasn't even there. So and and part of it is Sally trying to get her dad's attention. But um, actually hitting Sally was not ideal for getting a haircut that really wasn't that different from from Betty's. <laughs> oh, yeah, no kidding. And And while I hate that Henry has to come in and be the good dad slash husband which in betty's case he's kind of both um i <laughs> love henry so much <laughs> he looks good in a sweater he lets her rest fills out that bathrobe lap <laughs> just generally doing excellent work henry excellent work yeah i love the way that he encourages betty to be gentle with sally after this incident um he's like let her know that she's gonna get her hair fixed like don't let your child feel like you have abandoned her even though you overreacted um you know let her go to the sleepover with oh so i guess this is all henry's fault (laughs) (laughs) oh also though i will point out when they're like what do you mean uh, you know, you weren't with your kids when you had them, uh, and then they like immediately send Sally to a sleepover. <laughs> Granted, they yeah. have her all the time, but well, and Henry was like, when I was divorced, I would never not have my kids when I was supposed to be having my kids, and I'm like, yeah, but sometimes you were out like creeping around, <laughs> Betty. So <laughs> I just I find it a little hard to believe that you didn't get a babysitter one time. I like how we, like, swoon over Henry, but also immediately don't trust him. Oh, I know. Can't trust a man. Nope. Not Matt a man. Matt excluded. Matt yeah. innocent. Yes. 
especially one who's so willing to put up with with all the things that Biddy is right now. And I mean, I know it's hard for her right now too. And they're sometimes... still living in Don's house. <laughs> like I. Can't... And sometimes it's really triggering to be in a healthy relationship when you have <laughs> uh, grown up. Uh, when you grew up in a household with a dysfunctional mm-hmm. primary relationship, I get that. I get it. But um, it's complicated, and no wonder Sally is having a hard time. Yeah. Um, I realized that it was my fault that we started talking about Betty and Sally, but um, I have a couple more Don Draper things, which is just that he is checking in with his secretary about a call to California, and I'm like, is this an Anna update? Do we need Anna advice? Like, do we need to know how her health is faring? Like, is this what Don's doing, calling California? I have to know. I hope. I hope so. I hope so. Um, I also love the way he just knows he has no choice but to deal with Mrs. Blankenship. <laughs> I know. Her glasses for her crossword puzzle. I just love it. I hope those still exist. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure that they do. She's just Miss, um, Mrs. Peter and Price. <laughs> and yeah. her fighting over the gift with Pete. Is it too much? Maybe. Do I enjoy it? Yes. Yes. Um, and then like Faye having a bonding moment with Don Draper, telling him a secret. I'm I'm worried. We always have to be worried when Don shares like a secret part of him. <laughs> yeah, and like obviously she feels like comfortable being a certain amount of like honest and vulnerable with him, and I'm just like don't (laughs) why are you showing him trust yeah and just the way that scene is just shot and it's framed and just the way it's written where it's like don is again skeptical of talk therapy and is like thinking about it and like processing something in his home life out loud with a woman that came into his orbit through his professional circle um and then ends up basically doing talk therapy and talking mm-hmm. about how his his feelings and everything else is just mm-hmm. like the most Don thing ever. Yeah. And then why does everyone have to talk about things? He says talking about all the things. Yeah. Talking about things, yeah. And then just the the fact that like there are some cool framing and blocking the shot as it was in this small kind of kitchenette long hallway, which then got me thinking that like Again, like we were talking about with Joan, we have the male character, again, sharing more than maybe Roger necessarily shared, but definitely sharing, you know, having that discussion with the female character, like with the almost the expectation of this kind of like emotional labor or taking all the advice and the fact that it's happening in the often kitchenette. I'm like, interesting. That could be something, right? Mm-hmm. So... Um, just the way that Faye just kind of like nonchalantly puts her shoes back on and then leaves it just again it was a good scene in the vacuum it was and a, then you put it in it context scene. and you're like oh Don oh Don 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 yeah Don like, Don 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 <laughs> sorry <laughs> like the, the phrase like work wife isn't meant to be taken literally so why do you always have this for your quote quote work wives but not your actual wives because it's yeah. the work. It's the work. It's the work. Because then it would be hard to do it with actual person you've promised to have a lifelong commitment and intimacy with. 
I uh, I didn't put this in in the notes, but at the sleepover scene, um, what Sally is watching on TV is an episode of The Man from Uncle, who listeners might be familiar with from the the recent um, Guy Ritchie film adaptation of of that movie. The whole premise being of an American spy and a Soviet spy that end up teaming up and and doing missions and whatever. And again, we've talked before about some of the. Uh, ham-fisted symbolism <laughs> on Mad Men at times and definitely that you can see aspects of that kind of throughout the episode whether it's Don and Betty kind of having a bit of a detente to put Sally you know through through the counseling or you know Roger's storyline with with Honda and different different things like that so again like I don't think it's quite as uh early episode at Mad Men where the horseshoe falls over and the luck runs out because you have to be somewhat familiar with the the reference of the show so it's not quite as on the nose but I did definitely want to uh, call that out. Hmm. So Benny, let's talk about the scene where Betty's meeting with the child psychologist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually let's pull back a little bit because I want to talk about the scene where Betty and Henry talk about psychology or psychotherapy um, in bed before that. um, Because I, I like that Betty actually like told him that feels like something for her. Um, Mm -hmm. But I just like, I hate to hear her say that like, oh, I don't think it works. I was just bored. And it's like, you weren't bored. Like that is like not to um, use this term too lightly, like, but like, that's like gaslighting. Like you knew that Don was doing shit behind your back and then he used your therapist against you. Mm -hmm. And it just makes me sad that she does not have any awareness of that and thinks that like therapy is bad because Don is bad. Yeah. And that therapist was bad. Um, But yeah, and so then when she talks to the child psychologist, I really took note of her saying, like, Henry has a daughter and she's exceptional. Well, we heard that Henry's daughter went to therapy. You think that, do you think that might also just be her, like, justifying to herself as to why Sally it's needed okay a psychiatrist? Sally- yeah. yeah. Like, it's not maybe. actually a thing against her. Yeah, I think there's a lot of like, well, because she's still performing this role, you know, where she still has yeah. to look even to Henry, even for as open as she is with Henry. She's still playing that whole like, well, I didn't really need a person kind of thing. And, mm-hmm. and even trying to show the, the therapist uh, or psychiatrist that, oh, Sally doesn't really need this. We're not really bad. But like even normal successful people do this and it's totally fine. I do like the psychiatrist, though, because she's clearly like, well, yes, a lot of a child's problems do stem from the parents' problems. Yeah, I loved how willing she was to work with Betty, like, very subtly to where Betty might not even notice she's receiving therapy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And probably someone who understands, like, childhood dysfunction is uh, a good person for Betty to be talking to. There was just a lot of projecting, though, in that, in all the things she was saying. Um, I forget what it, what I had s- noted down, though. But in stuff like um, Betty talking about how she thinks Sally's only doing this to punish her somehow, all the stuff about how she's been acting weird ever since her father's, after Betty's dad's death, even though you're like, it might also just have to do with the whole divorce thing. 
just all that stuff. Like she's she's telling on herself. Mm-hmm. I don't think it would be too reductive to say that essentially all of Betty's actions in this episode, especially as they relate to Sally, are projections of self, right? And this is where, like, I'm trying to kind of rectify the tracks in the arc and, like, what what would have, have led... You know, the the season one Betty, who we're kind of reassessing so much with the like, oh, no, this is like crystallizing more with like, you know, my 12 years ago or, or 11 and a half years ago kind of, you know, perceptions at the time. And it's like, I still think Betty is searching for a way to hmm, reclaim the power that she never had or that she lost in the way in which she was emotionally neglected in her mm-hmm. marriage, right? For so long. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. in her seeking out a partner like Henry, who is like somewhere between her ex-husband and her father in terms of like mm-hmm. demographics and having more of that um, fatherly energy, there's and I don't think this is definite I don't mean this like I don't think this has the dynamic based on like you know Henry necessarily per se but there well Henry tries very carefully I think to provide kind of like a counterbalance to some of of Betty's perspectives and that's definitely more of a partnership than she had with Don because Betty is still seeking out, I think, a little bit more of that father-type figure, I'm wondering if there's still some then feelings of insecurity in the power dynamic in her relationship. And then so through her projections, through her feeling like she wants to have control over some aspects of her life, it's coming across with that, you know, in the shape of a a fist, Um really tightly around Sally and then that's gonna make me wonder if like sometimes when you squeeze things so tight they slip through your fingers mm-hmm. and so like she's she's squeezing very tight right now in the the face of these acting out and she's you know blaming Don which again I don't think is totally unfair but also not doing that introspective work because again she wants to be in control and the thing she can because that she has that that control over that influence over is her children mm-hmm. and Sally's the one that's what nine or ten and like starting to push back. She's in her tween years, right? So mm-hmm. yeah. again, not condoning, just trying to like see where the arc is, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's because we find out that part of the reason of her exaggerated reaction at least at least to the you know being caught by the at the sleepover is partially because of how her mother raised her um Mm -hmm. uh and you know the way she just like runs in a room and grabs sally's face going like you don't do that in private you certainly don't do it in public you know the thing about her brother's magazine you do do that in private (laughs) (laughs) but at the same time you're like oh 
something happened where Betty yes. got the message loud and clear that she yes. doesn't do it in private either. And um, it's still not quite like building up sympathy, but like a sort of, I guess, understanding. Um, but it's a thing where it's so, I'm, and this isn't a criticism. This is just me just saying that it, in the, the character, they, they do demonstrate that there is a, a sense that Betty does not differentiate Sally from herself. She's just more of an extension mm-hmm. versus like a mm-hmm. separate person, which is, you know, how people even today still sometimes see their kids. Um, and I kind of like wonder how much self-hatred is in there. And I know I was mm. complaining a little bit how heavy handed they've gotten with Betty and making her appear so like just blanket terrible, but uh, I've already lost track of the sentence. You know, like how mm. much self-hatred is in this woman still um, who's found herself in a much better situation um, with someone who is better than the 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 man she started a fa- originally started a family with that she just just keeps projecting that anger onto her daughter who is probably not totally unlike her and also no one cares about bobby so whatever yeah no one. well what's even worse is baby gene didn't even get to go to his dad's no kidding he's yeah. not even get to say hi to that baby don's never even said hi to that baby not one time yeah that kid's gonna feel that one day how are you so mad that he's not spending time with your kids and yet there's one kid where you're like, well, not fucking that one. Who cares? Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, no. Um, I'm currently reading Celeste Ng's, um, what was it? Everything I Never Said. Yeah. And it's uh, set in the 70s, I think. Um, early 70s. And there's a lot of, of this dynamic of the parents focusing all on the one daughter and... Mm. There's the other one that kind of resents that that oldest daughter, but also, you know, their buds. And then you've got the youngest one who just is aware of the fact that uh, she's just meant to be invisible. <laughs> and occasionally is forgotten. So uh, I'm seeing the uh, I'm seeing some parallels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I um, loved how Betty told the therapist about like how she wished Henry would have met her dad and how Sally is, you know, messed up from her dad dying. And it's like, oh, it's really you. Mm-hmm. Well, it can be everybody and you should all talk about it. Big projection. Uh, big projection energy here. Well, and like I wondered in that scene, too, when like Betty asks the psychologist um if betty gets to be privy to what um sally talks about in therapy and the doctor then very correctly says no and it works both ways and like that's obviously informed by the negative experience that betty had in in therapy four years ago or four seasons ago or three seasons ago i guess technically um but then part of me wonders too if like Betty was a little bummed by that again because like of wanting to have that inner that different kind of power dynamic that Don had had with her before right like mm-hmm. I don't know maybe but now that you mention it 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 is also sort of interesting that maybe the um therapist is also picking up on the fact that oh Betty might be afraid of Sally learning things about her. Mm, even though yeah. she's a child, she's still worried about even that judgment. 
Well, yeah. and the therapist doesn't even know how bad of a therapist Betty once had. Mm-hmm. I hope that Betty goes down a path with this Dr. Edna and the best. can just be reaffirmed how shitty that first therapist experience was and how none of that ever should have happened and how violating it was and just... I just think it would be nice for her to, like, understand that, like, her experiences with what Don was doing were very real mm-hmm. and not okay. I think both the Draper women could definitely stand to do with this lovely therapist who will actually listen mm-hmm. to them. I like it. And also good for Henry for being so progressive. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Henry. <laughs> oh, hungry? Oh, Henry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It definitely, oh. like, this episode, because we've talked about how, like, Madman kind of structured its its, seize, its seasons, right, of the 13 episodes. And we kind of had, had the first act, we had the setting of the stage, and it definitely feels like this episode was one of those ones we've had in previous seasons that is really getting ready and moving pieces for what's what's going to be revealed kind mm-hmm. of in the, the middle act. But I think this is one of the ones that, like, it it has its problems <laughs> um yeah. and like you can see the seams in places but i think there's some really strong individual moments in this episode that i i enjoyed yes i i agree um pete did not fuck anything up this time no he didn't which this is great for him um don once again was both another mess but also got to be the hero kind of Except literally no one got the account, so. Um, yeah. But they got, like, a Cars account, right? Yeah. There was, like, Yeah, some they got the success. Honda car account. Oh, yeah. Because um, Honda's still figuring out how to do cars, I guess. Cause, They're know, working on they it. They haven't invented the Civic yet. They haven't invented the Civic yet. Um, They're working on it. Although, the other day, I was stuck behind. Not stuck behind. I was following a Honda on... Uh, 495 and for some reason like two people in a row tried to merge into this car because they couldn't see it and this car already had a dent in it it was a sonata apparently the honda sonata was invisible so (laughs) um, was was wonder woman driving it it was like her invisible jet i hope not because it was a really ugly mustard color (laughs) (laughs) so um not to besmirch the good name of Honda. I'm sure there was just that one specific car. Honda's a great. I want a CRV. <laughs> no, and, and I think the one thing I kind of let just felt like drenched in American exceptionalism in this episode that made me kind of roll my eyes is like when Don gets his hero moment going into like, you know, he's he's sewered ted shaw who made a commercial to break the rules and then he basically like in his own perception and this whole like problematic framing of japanese culture based on this book that american wrote in the late in the late 40s during the start of the the american occupation after the second world war he basically gets to out japanese the japanese and it's just like okay of course you're like tom cruise in the last samurai i get it bud thank you (laughs) like eye roll like yeah but yeah it makes this big show about honor basically in front of the the honda people but but he did that by incredible means of of lying and trickery yeah it's just like this this very like post-war 
very like 50s 60s sense of like american triumphalism and i'm just like okay i get it yeah yeah it's Mad Men. <laughs> it does think it's quite clever sometimes. Just like Don. Just like Don. I still say the true hero, the real MVP is Joan, though. Yes. 100%. Who comes into them arriving at the office, the Honda people coming into the office going, I hope no one's taking you to Benny Hanna's. Uh, and then they lean into the Japanese stereotypes and just have them staring directly at her chest. Mm-hmm. Great. Cool, cool. Cool, 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 cool. Um, did we, were we going to talk more about her and Roger? I know. She was still great. She handled it beautifully, even though she really shouldn't have to. Um, and she's the best. Um, she reminded us that she's married, and I remembered to be like, I fucking hate that guy. <laughs> I hope we never see him again. <laughs> he still sucks. Wherever he is, he sucks. We just know that. He's like in train, or getting ready to go to like, training right because that was part of her choosing to believe about the whole making the world a better place because he's about to go to vietnam Mm -hmm. so which i don't know if our listeners have have heard of the american war in vietnam didn't 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 go so hot um complicated yeah it was complicated (laughs) yeah yeah and again like roger's because I don't want to dismiss what Roger went through um, or that it still affects him because that kind of level of PTSD and what he went through, obviously very important and very formative to him, mm-hmm. who he was. I thought that line where um, where they told him, you know, those aren't the same people. And he goes, why not? I'm the same people. That's an incredibly accurate trauma thing where you kind of get stuck in that moment of whatever happened to you in a really difficult, um, you know, highly intense time that made you know that just your body and brain could not handle but he's just so terrible that it makes me not want to listen to him or care about his pain yeah and like when when pete's going at him about how like and surprisingly don's like kind of on pete's side um when like rogers and pete essentially like says rogers and upset about the war it's just about pete bringing in money and like the more the less reliant on lucky strike the new agency is the less reliant there there are on roger and i do think there is an element in that um but also like pete is undercutting some of like you say roger's own trauma but again i don't want to fall in the trap that the show falls into a lot where it's all like oh men are this way because they're sad like you know because they have experienced traumas because it's like what what traumas has has roger and all the men in this office heaped on any of the non cis white males in the office Mm -hmm. too right so yeah it's Mm -hmm. yeah um though uh not that roger was the only one saying some uh wonderfully offensive things because again we don't care about bobby draper but i care about him even less when he's saying words mm-hmm. like so, why yeah like him why does he think it's funny to describe his sister who just cut her hair like that like that why um, did adults writing this show think that that would be funny 
it's I don't it's like weird. I don't know if it's supposed to be funny. It's like it's that thing where it's all like the isn't this cringe? We used to talk like this and then like Yeah, and I am yeah. cringing. <laughs> yeah. It is. We know it is. And you just had like a small child say that phrase. We can cuz like we can comfort ourselves like Kieran and Chip God didn't actually have to like you know, no one had to explain to her how to touch herself on screen or anything mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. But you actually had that word, those words coming out of whoever is playing Bobby Draper this season. Cool. Cool. <sighs> um, yeah. So anyways, great. Good stuff. Yeah. And did we already bits and bobs? Uh, we did. Or is there anything else? Because I didn't have one. Um, I already mentioned Benny Hanna. Oh, um, the credit song. I enjoy being a girl. I think it was Doris Day. It was the Doris Day version of it. Um, it was. It's kind of like a cute little thing, probably because of Sally's haircut. You know, when I have a brand new hairdo, uh, which is cute. But also, the song is from the Flower Drum Song, which was a movie that came out in 1961, a musical. It was the first major Hollywood feature film to feature a majority Asian American cast in a contemporary Asian American story. Uh, so it was kind of like fun and apt in that kind of way, except, you know, it was a Chinese American story, not a Japanese one. I don't know. I Part of me thinks that uh, whoever picked that song did not re- realize that connection. I'm going to say that was Matthew Weiner. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what do you mean? He's normally known for his uh, cultural sensitivity and great care. Yeah, and I guess the only other bit in Bob that I had was at one point during the episode, Peter describes the event as a Margaret Dumont-sized disaster, which is a reference to the death of the actress who died in the same... Yeah, so or March 65, who died the same month as the episode is sec- set, oh, wow. March 1965, mm. and Margaret Dumont... Um, was called by, I think it was Groucho Marx, the uh, fifth Marx brother. Um, she starred in a lot of their movies and, and different things like that. So it was a kind oh, of wow. big oh, actress, cool. comedian, and the, the unofficial fifth Marx, Marx brother, Margaret Dumont. That's actually awesome. Well, cool. Did yeah, we do it? I think, I think we, we did, did it. it. Um, all right. So until next time, where can folks find you on the internet? Matt? Yeah, folks can follow me on Twitter and Letterboxd at at Mattyhugh, M-A-T-T-Y-H-U-G-H. You can also catch me on my Star Trek Deep Space Nine podcast with friend of the pod, Elise, at Pod Wraiths. Uh, you can catch me on The Daily Nightly, a Jane Austen podcast that we do with our friend Jesse. Uh, we're finishing up we're about we have finished up we will be finishing mansfield park uh and be talking about adaptations and then following it up with emma um also you can catch me guessing on another podcast um also do you happen to know what the name of that podcast is oh you know i think that podcast might be called wild pretty things i think i might know some of the people who host that show yeah, you I have think an I in do too. too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I have an in. <laughs> um, yeah, because yeah, you can find me co-hosting that podcast or on Twitter at Mellow Yellow. 
And we talked about Guillermo del Toro and Pan's Labyrinth. Yay. Oh, man, I had a lot of feelings. Is that going to be on the main feed or is that a Patreon episode? It is going to be half and half. So you will get oh, okay. um, some Guillermo ta- del Toro talk and some Pan's Labyrinth talk. No spoilers on the main feed. And then we'll get deeper into all of that with spoilers on the Patreon. Oh, man. That reminds me. I wanted to talk to you, Melissa, about... Because now I know you've seen Nightmare Alley. Uh, if you also had some moments of thinking of Don Draper... Uh, our our unscrupulous, ambitious hobo. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't until you said that. But now it's like very clear with his like dad trauma and his schemes, his ambitions, and yeah. So that is just a cautionary tale for the Don Draper types. Yeah, don't 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 be that. <laughs> Anyway, (laughs) I really need Nightmare Alley to start streaming here. I know it's streaming in the States, but it's not. Oh, my God. On two streamers and neither of them are in Canada. That's rude. That is so rude. Okay, once you see it, Matt, we can talk about how Don (laughs) Draper is Bradley Cooper. (laughs) And they're both like handsome and that kind of same sort of classically like. I don't think Bradley Cooper is from the Midwest. I think he's from like Pennsylvania or something, but like. Anyways, and that like Bradley Cooper could wear a t-shirt. I'm gonna I'm gonna drop a hot take here right at the end of the pod. Bradley Cooper does nothing for me. You know, he doesn't do a ton for me, but I liked him in his period garb in Nightmare <laughs> Alley. <laughs> well, at least you liked something about, about it. High waisted pants. Oh, I liked Kate Blanchett. Oh well, that's just because you're yeah. a breathing human. <laughs> yeah. In my mind, he's had to overcome a lot because the first thing I remember seeing him in was like as the villain in Wedding Crashers. And he's just this like real like preppy, shitty boyfriend with like, I don't think he has a full hot faux hawk. I think the like artist brother has the full on faux hawk, but just like, yeah, it took me a long time to get over him in that role. Um, but anyways, you can catch all of us together. <laughs> You can email us together at stillgreatbob at gmail.com. We're together on Twitter at at stillgreatpod. Yeah. And as always, thank you to DJ Empirical for our very groovy theme song. He's the best. Yeah. All right, till next time, guys. This week on Mad Men, Donnie. Pfft. Donnie. <laughs> <laughs>